So I recently returned from um, sitting six weeks at IMS uh, back on the East Coast. And I actually uh, flew out to the Boston airport. Uh, it was eight days after the November 11th attack. I'm sorry, the September 11th attack. And it uh, was the second day that the airports were reopened. Uh, and that was definitely a uh, pretty strange flight. And I had a lot of mixed feelings about going on retreat. Part of me felt that it was really important, an important thing to do during the, that crazy time. And also part felt that it was somehow important to just stay connected into the world, just with everything going on and all the uncertainty. Uh, and once I was there, a lot of people shared similar feelings and it felt pretty uh, right to be there. And during the retreat, they didn't say anything about what was going on out into the world. They made a decision and they announced to everyone that they wouldn't talk about anything going on unless it was something, and I don't know what the criteria was, but had to be pretty major. And I think the things that were going on, as I didn't know about the bombing or the you know, war in Afghanistan. It didn't surprise me at all, but I, I wasn't aware of that until I came out. I didn't know anything about the anthrax, just any of that. Um, while I was at the retreat, I was working a lot with um, a well-known verse or quote from the third Chinese patriarch. And many of you will have heard this quote, which is, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And um, I was thinking about that a lot, and I want to talk about that tonight. What does that mean? Especially coming out of the retreat. Because certainly it does not mean that we don't care about anything. We do have a lot of preferences about some things. Coming out, you know, we're having this war going on in Afghanistan. It doesn't mean, well, I don't care, you know, if we're, we could bomb them or not. And either way is okay with me because I don't have any preferences. That's not what it means. Or, well, you know, they have the anthrax going around and, you know, whatever, either way is okay. Right? They could have it or not. I have no preferences. That's not what the meaning is. So I wanted to talk about that really what that means. Because actually in, um, uh, in the Buddhist teachings, um, there are many things that we care about actually quite deeply that the Buddha taught. <coughs> compassion, the teachings of compassion, which is a deep caring, are, it's a cornerstone foundational teaching within Buddhism. And as a matter of fact, the compassion and the wisdom are considered to be, as many of you know, the two wings. And it's said without both in balance, you can't fly. So the compassion, it's not just developing the wisdom, but it's also developing uh, the compassion. And also just, uh, you know, we um, look at the Brahma Viharas that we discuss uh, many times. I'm sure they get talked about in this group a lot. I'll just say what they are in case some of you aren't familiar with them. The Brahma Vihara is that word. The Brahma is the 
the gods or divine or heavenly. And the vihara is the dwelling place. So the Brahma viharas are these four qualities that by developing them, it's as if we're um, raising ourselves up to the highest that we can be as human beings in a sense. And the four Brahma viharas are uh, metta is the Pali word, loving kindness. That's the first. Compassion is the second. Uh, sympathetic joy or taking happiness or joy in the happiness of others is the third. And then equanimity is the fourth. And these qualities are um, emphasized a lot and in the uh, in the sutras, in the discourses of the Buddha, they're talked about many, many times throughout. So it's, these are qualities that are real important. And the Brahma Viharas, each of them has what's called a near enemy and a far enemy. The far enemy is the opposite. The near enemy, it's interesting that they use the word near enemy. It's something that's not quite the same as the Brahma Vihara, but it can mask or look like the Brahma Vihara if we're not careful. It's actually called a near enemy. So just think of. Um, Compassion. Well, the far enemy of compassion, what would that be? It's just the opposite of compassion, right? It's really really a not caring. The near enemy of compassion is pity. You could kind of see that you you really didn't look closely. It's possible that you could fall over into pity. Equanimity, the... um, the far enemy of equanimity is, so it's the opposite, it's having no equanimity, just being caught up at the, at the effect of everything. The near enemy of equanimity is, is to be disconnected from or aloof from. And you can also see that could kind of seem like you have equanimity, Right? But it's not being disconnected from anything. Really, equanimity is to be fully connected and engaged with, fully awake to and aware of what's going on. But still have some kind of stability of the heart and the mind. So we can see that we're not talking about, the Buddha was not talking about being disconnected, not caring at all. Just the opposite. So once again, we can ask, well, what, what did the third Chinese patriarch mean? The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Um, to really understand that, we need to step back for a minute and just uh, take a look at the concepts of of relative truth and ultimate truth. I want to just talk about that a little bit just to make sure that um, we're all have a similar understanding about that or what what is meant by that. Bodhicitta 
or we pronounce it bodhicitta here, is a term that was really developed fully in later Mahayana Buddhist traditions, but is um, its seeds or its roots are firmly established in even the earliest Buddhist teachings. Uh, the word uh, bodhicitta, the bodhi is awake. The citta get, is used in several different ways. Uh, in a real strict technical sense, it can mean consciousness, but it's also generally meant to use for mind. And also in Buddhist teachings, it's quite common to inter- use heart and mind interchangeably. So bodhicitta is the awakened heart-mind, or the heart-mind of awakening. There's relative bodhicitta and there's ultimate bodhicitta. Um, Relative bodhicitta is that mm, it's the motivation or it's the aspiration or an inspiration even of deep caring for all beings. And traditionally in the Bodhisattva path, it is that first, the, the, it begins with the awakening of this relative bodhicitta. Here in the West and in, in more in modern times, we tend to use, you know, the Bodhisattva is a term we use kind of loosely. It just means really not being so self-centered is the way we tend to use it, right? So we'll say, oh, I'm going to be a Bodhisattva. I'm going to put aside my desires and do something for for someone else. Actually, traditionally, it's much more complex than that. Up until recent times, and still really throughout Asia, uh, the bodhisattva path starts with this awakening of bodhicitta, this desire, this aspiration for just the welfare and the deep, deep caring and compassion for all beings. And then out of that, one makes an aspiration to become a Buddha, a full Buddha, as quickly as possible. That's really the bodhisattva path, the traditional bodhisattva path. Because it's said in order to help the most people in the deepest way, the best way to do that is to fully is to be a Buddha. So in the traditional bodhisattva path, it does um, entail a belief in multiple lifetimes. You don't have to have a belief in multiple lifetimes at all to practice these teachings. Not necessary at all, because everything's practiced just here and now. But there's no doubt that in the Bodhisattva path, it does entail uh, multiple lifetimes, because once with the awakening of Bodhicitta, the next step is you have to get a prediction from, from a Buddha that you will indeed become a Buddha. So your aspiration, you want to develop a lot of merit and good qualities, and you're no, in no rush because we're talking about vast expanses of time, eons, many, many eons of lifetimes, innumerable lifetimes to develop these qualities and have an aspiration to be born at when there is, when the next Buddha comes so that you can get the prediction. And then once you've gotten the prediction, then it's more incalculable uh, lifetimes than to all the perfections until you can become a full Buddha. 
That's the traditional bodhisattva path. So bodhicitta and the bodhisattva path aren't exactly the same thing. The bodhisattva path is quite uh, complex, but it starts with this deep, deep awakening and care for all beings. That's this awakening of relative bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta is something else. Ultimate bodhicitta is the realization of emptiness. So really the relative bodhicitta is the compassion wing and the ultimate bodhicitta is the wisdom. So I also just want to take just a few moments and step back about that and just say something about emptiness and then we'll come back and try to pull it together here. Um, So emptiness also is um, an idea that was really more fully developed later in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. But once again, it is in the earliest Buddhism and and it's really rooted there. Um, Most, well, many people, especially when you first hear emptiness, um, it's certainly not a very attractive sounding word, you know, emptiness. It sounds like nothingness. And who wants, who, nobody wants that, right? Right? That's not actually the meaning. Emptiness, shunyata, is the word. What it really means is that, um, and let me say what it is, and then you may or may not have a reaction to it, but then we'll discuss it a little bit. And we're also going to have some time at the end here for some discussion about this. What we mean when we talk about emptiness is that everything is empty of what we say, the way we say it is of inherent existence. And what is meant by that is everything is here. We're here. We exist. There is the, the world of outside of ourselves of experience. So us and the world all exist. But there's nothing that can be found of a permanent, everlasting nature in the, in the world of experience. Within, as we look within ourselves as human beings, it's this flow of experience, rising and falling, It's there, it's passing away. It's just a flow of experience. There's nothing we can find that doesn't, is unchanging. And um, so that's what's also very closely related to emptiness is this idea of non-self or we say no self or selflessness, anatta, selflessness. So if we look at what we are as human beings, you know, there's this model of this five aggregates as the model where they deconstruct the human being down into five kind of parts. There's consciousness. Well, there's our bodies. That's one. Consciousness itself, the chitta that we were talked about. Um, there's feeling, which in, in this sense refers to the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of any experience. And there's perception. Perception is the, is the ability to take sense input and put it together and, and name it. 
So, for example, if I look out, rather than just seeing what I'm seeing is, is light and shapes coming in, but I put it together and I can see that that's a lamp and name it. That's the perception quality. And then there's all the other um, mental formations, uh, emotions and thoughts and all of that. Okay? If you look carefully, I don't think you can find uh, anything within us that's, that's not, that is permanent. We certainly, it's not hard to see that the body's not permanent. Perceptions change. Feeling changes. It can be pleasant, unpleasant. Certainly all the mental formations are changing, coming and going, thoughts, emotions. Some people say, ah, but consciousness, that's sort of the, that's the real me, you know, that which is aware. But even consciousness is not, um, it's not permanent, right? Even in, in English we say, we have the word unconscious, right? We can be not conscious. Where's consciousness in, um, say, if we're in deep, dreamless sleep? I don't actually know. We could have a philosophical debate about it. But, so anyway, so we're saying that, that there's conditions come together and there's this flow of experience, this river of being that we call ourselves. Where we get into problems is, is that we grasp onto it and, and, do, and don't want it to change. And that, that's, the, that's the whole uh, dharma, really, of, of liberation through non-clinging. Because we're, it's just this flow of change. There's nothing permanent or fixed. And when we cling to it, we suffer because it's, it does change. And the, it's that letting go and allowing things to be. It's that opening to life as it is. It's the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. That is the, that freedom in the midst of our lives just as it is. And it's the same for not just us as beings, but then what we would perceive to be external to ourselves. You know, when you look out, sight, sounds, touch, feelings, just sense input is also empty of inherent existence. It's there. There is something going on, but there's nothing there that's permanent and fixed. And so, the whole Dharma is that it's this empty flow of experience. That's what they mean when they say it's an illusion, it's a shadow. You may hear these kind of words, right? And we suffer when we cling and when we just let go. That's when we're free. So the question we're being asked is, can we be open to ourselves and to life as it is? It doesn't mean that we don't try to change anything. We don't just become passive and and, and stop being involved in our lives or creating our lives to be what we want them to be. Of course we're not going to stop doing that, right? But while we're in the process of trying to make our lives be what we want them to be, in the moment we get what we get, 
That's the place where we work when we talk about waking up into the present moment. Okay? So if you sit to meditate, just for example, and you know, meditation is nothing special, it's just life. But it just happens to be life that looks like sitting down in some position with your eyes closed. That's, it's, you know, it's no different than going to the store or anything. It's just that moment of life. When we sit to meditate, and it was very interesting actually looking back at my retreat because it was um, well, I just got to see how much I would suffer as I kept trying to get back that great meditation I had a week and a half ago. <coughs> Where what I should have been was with what's actually occurring in the moment, which is mind won't concentrate. Right? That's actually the truth in that moment. That's what is. So we all as human beings tend to live, one way that it's said that I think is kind of nice, is we tend to live on the surface appearance of things. And really what we're doing in the meditation practice is, it is just life, but it's a very, we're setting up a special circumstance to allow us, you know, we close our eyes. It's actually fine to meditate with your eyes open, but most of, in, in this practice, we tend to meditate with our eyes closed. So we can, and we try to cultivate a certain amount of concentration, which takes time. And, you know, that concentration comes and goes. And so sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. And we use that to try and go in a little deeper to get underneath the surface appearance of things, to see what's going on in a deeper way. When we live on the surface appearance of things, first of all, we're at the more at the effect. We're not looking at things. We're just kind of unconscious and going along, and we're just at the effect of life. We're not free. And when we live on the surface appearance of things, When we don't look closely, everything really does. You know, if you kind of back off and don't look too closely, everything does look more solid and real. Right? It's only when we get closer and deeper in that we start to see more what's really going on, just this, this impersonal, empty flow of phenomenon. Okay? As we start to see more clearly, one of the things that is very common that happens, doesn't happen to everyone, is as we start to see more clearly, as the wisdom grows and we go deeper, <coughs> compassion, the heart naturally opens. Now, there are p- compassion practices that we can do, just like there are metta. We t- I'm sure that gets done here a lot, metta, loving-kindness practices. There are also compassion practices that we can do to develop those qualities. I find for myself that and I do some of those practices, but I find for myself, as the mind quiets, the heart naturally opens more. Because our natural state is not separate. When we don't look closely, when we stay separate from ourselves and our experience, we do think of our, it, it really, we do have an experience of separateness, right? There's me and there's you and there's me and there's everything out there. We're, we're more disconnected. 
as as we develop the wisdom to see what's real, we start to see that there, our natural state is not one of disconnectedness. We have a natural compassion, a natural connectedness. How is it that we see deeper into what is? It's by go. It's by delving into our experience without trying to change it, confronting ourselves and our lives just as it is. That's the meaning of no preferences. That's the starting point. And it's, so what we're really saying is, is it's out of no preferences that our deepest compassion arises. It's out of no preferences that we can connect with our lives as it is, that we can get under the surface appearance for that natural, deep, deepest connection. And it's when we come from that place that we're not in reaction to life, that we can start to develop a certain amount of equanimity and ability to actually act in the more skillful way when we're at the effect of our reactions. Oftentimes, I'm sure everyone knows this, that oftentimes we don't act in the most skillful way. We react. Out of our no preferences, we can actually be more effective, more compassionate than ever before. That's really my take on this beautiful saying, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. It's really a great harmony with other beings and with life. When I got to this retreat, um, some of you have sat at IMS are familiar. There's this one area called the gym, which is uh, this little, used to be a gym, and they've uh, you can't tell that it was a gym now. And some rooms down there, ten rooms, and it's a little bit isolated. And I really wanted to do uh, most of my meditation practice in the in my room and not come out very much to really get the quiet uh, and deepen the, the silence. So I get the room down there. It was great. Just what I wanted. And it turns out there's a little walking area down there, and people don't go down there very much, so you really feel like you're kind of alone. And I would come out and go to the talk in the morning the, 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 where they give the meditation instructions. I'd go to some of the Dharma talks, but pretty much I would stay there. So it's my very first day. I've got six weeks you know, looming ahead. And I'm in my room. I sit, then I walk, then I sit. And I'm walking, and all of a sudden, just this loneliness welled up. I mean, deep. And then, oh, I didn't want to feel this loneliness, and this despair came up because there's no, you can't, there's no distraction. There's nowhere, you, nothing to do. It's, you're just with it. And oh, I had six weeks to go, and what am I going to do? And, and you know, I couldn't leave because I, you know, I'd look bad. And um, <laughs> and one of the things I was working with that I found very useful from Ajahn Sumedho, who's just a wonderful, wonderful teacher, and he has this phrase he uses about working with whatever whatever is is going on. He says he just says is like this. So. I was just working with it of, okay, loneliness is like this. Despair is like this. And I found that you could try and see 
in your life if that's something useful for you. I found that there's some quality, something about that particular phrase that really allowed me just to open to that as what was real and true in the moment and allowed me to be with it in a more in a less contracted way. I actually found that while certainly that some of the deeper meditation states you can get into are very valuable and important, but just as important, or maybe more even, was all the time in between when you don't have what we call a good meditation, right? You know? It was really interesting. I was thinking about this whole idea of, of working with no preferences and just being with what is. And I noticed all the times when I would really be having a great meditation and I would just feel or think, well, oh, I don't want to get up now. I think I'll sit a little longer. I don't think I ever had a time when when couldn't concentrate, body's hurting, I'm restless, I'm sleepy, thinking, well, restless or sleepy, I think I'll sit a little longer. (laughs) It's all just what is in the moment. It's all the, the empty flow of experience to open to without clinging. Um, so I just want to close with one more thing, which is uh, from the Buddha in one of the groups of the um, earliest uh, Pali suttas in which um, someone asked the Buddha, what is the difference between an enlightened person and just an ordinary person? And the Buddha said, For the ordinary person, the ordinary person experiences difficulty, unpleasantness in the body, in the mind, emotions, just all of it. It's like being struck with a dart and then it's like immediately stabbing yourself with a second dart because we get in reaction and aversion to that unpleasantness. So it's like being struck with a dart with the dart twice. We suffer twice. There's the unpleasantness of the experience and there's the big problem we make about it. He said, for the enlightened person, it's as if they were only struck with the dart once. (laughs) They still experience pleasant, unpleasant, everything. But they're, they're not looking to the experience for their happiness It's the relationship they're having with whatever experience, what actually is, where where they're finding their freedom. And that's actually a much deeper happiness. It's a different, it's not a conditional happiness. It's a much deeper kind of happiness that um, I think we all can at least taste as we're willing just to open to the great mystery of life. I think we'll I'll end here.